morning. I'd like to invite you to turn to the 16th Psalm. If you uh, have a Bible with you, or perhaps you can look over uh, your neighbor's shoulder if he or she has a Bible. We've just seen our choir and the uh, dramatists in the choir portray the events that took place 2,000 years ago, that 50-day period in which our Lord appeared here and there, unexpectedly made himself uh, visible. He wanted to uh, assure the disciples that though he was unseen, he was still very much uh, present with them. And we, uh, we saw portrayed in a dramatic fashion events that, that actually happen. This is not just a portrayal. These things really happen. And of the post-resurrection appearances of our Lord, the one that has always been, to me, the most significant is the one that was portrayed by uh, Cleopas here. That, uh, that day that the two disciples were making their way from Jerusalem down to the little town of Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem, a two or three hour walk. The two disciples, one of whom was probably Jesus' uncle, Cleopas, were talking about the events of the preceding days, the Lord's capture in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, that uh, terrible uh, miscarriage of, of justice that uh, they described as a trial, which was, in fact, nothing more than a kangaroo court. It was convened uh, against both Roman and Jewish law. There were no witnesses on Jesus' behalf. It was a kangaroo court. The cruel treatment at the hands of the soldiers, the crucifixion of our Lord, the request by Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus' so wealthy friend who took Jesus' body and laid it in uh, in a tomb, which uh, he had hewn out for his own family. All these things were going through these two disciples' minds, and they were conversing about these, uh, these momentous events. When our Lord fell in step with them, and he asked them what they were talking about, and they began to tell him about Jesus of Nazareth, who was uh, a man mighty in deed and in word. And they said, we, we had hoped that he would be the one who would redeem us of our sin, who would, who would set us free. But uh, the day they crucified him, the, the music died. There's no hope. And uh, our Lord's eyes must have twinkled as he said to them, Oh, you slow of, of heart to believe all that Moses and the prophets said of the one who is to come. And beginning with Moses, Luke tells us, the story is found in the last chapter of the uh, book of Luke. Beginning with Moses, Jesus began to interpret to them all things in the scriptures about himself. Began with the book of Genesis and then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then through those books that the uh, Jews describe as the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and then the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the Psalms that were considered uh, part of the prophetic writings. 
David has said in the New Testament and has been thought of by the Jews from the very beginning as a prophet, one who predicted the coming of, of the Messiah. Our Lord went through the Old Testament, which was the only scripture that the people of that time had. The New Testament, of course, had not been written. He went through the scriptures, through the Old Testament. And he interpreted to them those passages that spoke of him. Now, I'm convinced that Psalm 16 was one of the passages of which our Lord spoke. And I would like for you to read it with that thought in mind. It would be so good to have the Lord here in our presence, interpreting this, uh, this chapter for us. In effect, we do have his presence here because this, this psalm is quoted in the New Testament. And I'll read to you in a moment what the apostles themselves said about this passage. But first, let's look at it in its original uh, setting. A thousand years before the coming of Christ, 1000 B.C., David penned these words. Now, those of us that are, uh, that are regularly here at, at Cold Church for the past uh, eight or nine months have been looking at the narrative sections of David's life, in particular the book of 1 Samuel, and considering the raw data of, of his, uh, his existence, the things that happened to him early in life, and his flight from Saul, and his exile for a period in the wilderness, all of those events that led up to his, his anointing as a king over all Israel and Hebron. And we have coupled with the narrative sections the poems that David wrote during, those, uh, during the, that period of his life. The narrative text tells us what David actually did and what was done to him. The poems describe David's feelings. They unbear his soul. They show us what he was thinking, his, his joy when he was placed in the court. They, they describe his feelings when he faced Goliath. They tell us of the hurt and pain when his, his wife was uh, taken from him. Of that hollow feeling that he experienced when a contract was put out on, on his life. Of his raw terror on that day when he was surrounded on the hill of Hakalah by Saul and his henchmen. Psalms uh, tell us what David was feeling. For myself, I believe this particular psalm, Psalm 16, was written in the face of impending death. There was some circumstance that David was facing at the time he wrote this poem. It showed him how transient life really is, how suddenly it can, it can end, how fragile and frail we really are. And in response to the thoughts of his own death, he sat down and, and wrote this psalm. I'd like to read it to you now. Uh, verse 1. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. Here's just a, a simple expression of, of faith, his utter reliance upon God. That was the hallmark of, of David's uh, relationship to God. There was a lot about God that he didn't understand, but he trusted his heart. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now this uh, The second word for Lord here is the word for Master. In the Hebrew text, it's a statement of David's utter submission to God's willingness to go through whatever 
circumstances the Lord had uh, placed him in. Apart from you, he says, I have, I have no good thing. And then he'll go on in the rest of the psalm to explicate on this idea of, of there being no goodness apart from God. There's something about facing death that makes you realize that, uh, that God is our only good. As someone has said, there is that uh, moment of clear insight that men and women receive on their way to the gallows. Nothing is very important except God at those times. Not riches, not education, not husband or wife or lovers or friends or possessions. Nothing but God is, is important. Some of you may recall a couple of years ago, as Carolyn and I were driving through Price, Utah, I uh, thought I was having a heart attack, and I have tremendous chest pain, and Carolyn checked me into the hospital, and here we were miles away from home and friends. No one was aware of what was occurring, and Carolyn was not permitted in the critical care unit, and uh, they uh, medicated me so that I was no longer in pain, and I was lying there all by myself, and all of a sudden I began to realize that nothing, nothing is is important except God at a time like this. Nothing else matters. And that's what David is, is experiencing. There's no good, he says, except God. Same statement that's reflected in the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When God is... All that I have, God is all that I need. Now he elaborates uh, on that notion, verse 3. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. As G.K. Chesterton said, when once we turn our back on the living God, an infinite number of gods will not satisfy. They simply uh, leave us empty and... Uh, Longing for more. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you are my assigned lot, my portion in my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. It's a remarkable statement if we understand this psalm properly, that David is facing his own death. And he says there's something pleasant about my lot. He's satisfied. He's content with it. It's remarkable, as Dr. Spock would say. David is going back to the practice in ancient Israel when a piece of land was given to every family in Israel. It was their own special inheritance, their lot. And uh, the lines were drawn, the boundaries of those allocations were uh, well-defined. Each person knew his inheritance. But the Levites, the priests in Israel, were given no, no property because God was their lot. David sees himself spiritually here as a Levite. He wasn't. He was of the tribe of Judah. But he spiritualizes this uh, this notion, and here he is out in the wilderness. He has no piece of property, he has no family to speak of, no friends, no wealth, but he has God. And therefore, he says, the lines, the boundaries, the inheritance that I've received is, is delightful. 
Therefore, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. And those dark periods in the night when he was filled with dread as he faced his impending death, he delighted himself in the Lord and the Lord instructed him. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I'll not be shaken. That's a wonderful figure, the Lord present nearby at his right hand, teaching him, counseling him, instructing him, being his friend, his companion, providing all that that he needs. David says, I'll not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your holy one see decay. You have made me known, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David is speaking of heaven here. Now, most people believe that Heaven is not spelled out in any detail in the Old Testament. That's a concept, they say, that was kept from the Old Testament saints, but don't, don't you believe it? They had a clear understanding of, of their lot in life, being joined to God, being bound up in the bundle of life with Him, being united with God by faith. And as C.S. Lewis puts it, once you've been joined to God, how could you not live forever? When we share his life, his eternal life, how could we not live eternally? Oh, no. David had a clear concept of, of an eternity spent with God. He knew there was something after, as he puts it in, in, another, in another psalm. He would live in the house of the Lord forever. He tells us in Psalm 23 and expresses this exquisite, incredible joy that he has. Because this isn't all there is. Saul could take his life, his physical life, but he could never take life away from him. The odd thing about this psalm is that David goes way beyond his own experience. We've talked about that phenomenon before. Where in David's uh, descriptions of his feelings, he bursts beyond the limits of the Old Testament and he expresses himself in such grandiose ways the the feelings could not possibly be applied to him. He goes beyond his own feelings and expresses truths that could not be true of, of him. And this is what he does on this occasion. Look at verse 10 carefully. He expresses the joy of his heart, his confidence that his body would rest safe and secure because... He says in verse 10, You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Well, David died. And his body descended into decay. That's a fact that the apostles note in the New Testament as you turn to the book of Acts and you begin to read the stories, the accounts of the preaching of the apostles. You find them referring to the psalm, Psalm 16, and applying it directly to Jesus. Peter, in that great message before the uh, that, that huge crowd on the day of Pentecost, there may have been close to a million people gathered in Jerusalem, and, 
And we have no, no idea how many were gathered on the court of the temple on that particular day as, as Peter preached this uh, sermon. And he describes how the officials with wicked hands had, had slain the Lord. But, he said, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, and then he quotes verse 10, You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see, see decay. Brothers, Peter says, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried in his tomb is here to this day. You can go down below the temple to the place where the kings are buried and you can see his epitaph, his, his cenotaph there in, his, in the uh, description of his life and in death, he's buried there. His body did descend to decay, but he was a prophet. wasn't talking about himself. He was predicting the future. And he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, seeing what was ahead a thousand years before Jesus was, was born, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of the fact, as Luke puts it in his gospel. This thing was not done in a corner. It was widely known. There were over 500 witnesses, at least 500, and perhaps many more to the resurrection of, of Jesus. Peter says the psalm, Psalm 16, was written about him. Paul, a bit later in a sermon, says this, The fact that God raised him from the dead, and raised Jesus from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words, You will not let your Holy One see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his father's. And his body decayed, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. David was talking about Jesus. He foresaw his resurrection. A thousand years before our Lord came to earth, David predicted that he would rise from the dead. See, that's what Paul means when he says, you, you, you know the gospel. He writes to the people in Corinth. You know the gospel, how Jesus died, and how he was buried, and how he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Well, the only scriptures that Paul had, a few scraps of the New Testament in circulation, but the only part of the Bible known as the scriptures was the Old Testament. Paul says the Old Testament predicted that Jesus would rise again the third day, according to Jewish theology and tradition. The body did not begin to decay until the third day. And Paul's point is that the Old Testament, by predicting that he would not see decay, predicted that he would rise on the third day, and he did. He did. And what all the apostles wanted their hearers to know is that Jesus' resurrection is inextricably linked to ours. Because he rose from the dead, we rise from the dead. That's Paul's argument. It's the argument of the other apostles. The two are tied together. We do not have to fear death because he solved the dilemma of death. 
Now, how did he do that? Well, last week we talked about his dying words on the cross. Again, predicted by David in in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cried out his death throes. If you go back to the Garden of Gethsemane when he faced the will of the Father to bruise him, as Isaiah puts it, he didn't want to go to his death. No one does. We all fear it to some extent. But it was not merely his death that he feared. It was the cup that he had to drink. It was the wrath of God that was poured out on him on on the cross. It was his being made an atonement. He bore in his body, Peter says, our sins. And the wrath of God was poured out upon him. So that God may never have to pour out his wrath upon us. You see, death is not just the biological lot of men and women. We don't die simply because we get old. We should live forever. We were created that way. Death is our judgment. The wages of sin, Paul says, is death. Because our Lord paid the penalty for our death, we do not have to die eternally. Our Lord went to hell for us. He went through hell on the cross and he went to hell in his death in order that he might pay the price for our sins so that we might never experience that awful, awful separation from God. And all we have to do is believe it. Greatest event in all of history is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Isn't it ironic that the merchants, the media... Hard anybody in our culture recognizes the importance of that phenomenal happening. 2,000 years ago, an event predicted a 1,000 years before it took place, our Lord burst out of that tomb on Easter Day. Those that saw him experienced this colossal, incredible joy that we saw expressed on the faces of, of the women who portrayed that, that scene. Not only had Jesus returned, But now they had hope for the future as well. Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are of most men, most futile and empty. You know, let's close down our churches. Let's give all our pastors pink slips. Let's forget the gospel. Let's, Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Let's live for the moment. Let's take our lives. Let's despair or let's live as though there's no tomorrow because there's no hope. But because our Lord himself faced death for us, we do not have to face it and fear it. All we have to go through death, but death now becomes nothing more than a transition from this life to another, receiving more of God than we've ever had before. You know, we try to evade death. We don't want to talk about it. A lot of our dark humor is just whistling in graveyards. We don't want to face it, but it's one of those grim facts that we have to face. I read this past week of John Donne, a 16th century British poet who had one painting in his house. Portrayed on the wall of his bedroom was John Donne himself, wrapped in a shroud, prepared for burial. Sounds awful. But he put it there so he would remember his mortality. 
It's the same idea that the monks of the medieval age had when they, they kept skulls in their in their cells. I'm sure you've seen pictures of of monks uh, with a skull on their work table, and often there's a candle on top to show that the time is getting shorter. And across the brow of the skull is is written, "Remember death, remember death." We say, "How macabre! How weird!" No, they weren't preoccupied with death. They were just realistic about it. That's all. They had the courage to face it. But that's just one of those hard, brutal facts that we keep running our heads up against. We, we cannot evade the fact of our death. It's incredible the amount of energy that we spend trying to stave off death. We're trying to look a little more alive, even if we don't make ourselves live any, any longer. But it, it doesn't do any good. Tom Howard, uh, a professor of theology at Gordon College, put it well. He says, like a hen before a cobra, we find ourselves incapable of doing anything at all in the presence of the very thing that seems to call for the most drastic and decisive action. The disquieting thought that stares at us like a fact with a freezing grin is that there is, in fact, nothing we can do about dying. Say what we will, dance how we will, we will soon enough be a heap of ruined feathers and bones, indistinguishable from the rest of the, of the ruins that lie about us. It will not appear to matter in, to matter in the slightest whether we meet the enemy with equanimity, shrieks, or, or a trumped up gaiety. There we will be. In our fear of death, we try to trivialize it, cut it down to size, shrink it down to manageable uh, proportions, but let's not kid ourselves. Dying matters. Matters to us. We fear it. Why do we have to leave everything behind that we've worked so hard to achieve? Why do we have to leave everything to uh, to others? I read a story this past week about Winston Churchill. He was engaged in a conversation with a young woman at a, at a, at a banquet. And uh, he asked her how old she was. She said, I'm 19. And I, he said despairingly, am 32. And then he, he burst into a, a diatribe against the shortness of, of life. Curse time, curse my mortality, he said. How cruelly short is the allotted span for all we must cram into it. We're all worms. But then Churchill, who wasn't particularly known for his modesty, said, at least I'm a glowworm, he said. Dying frustrates us. But I want you to know that Jesus has done something about your dying. Isn't it remarkable that during this season, all around us, our culture celebrates bunnies and Easter clothing and spring flowers, and they curiously overlook the greatest fact of history, that Jesus died and rose again so that you might never have to die. Not in any ultimate sense. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a simple statement of what the resurrection means. For me to live in this life is Christ, to die is simply to gain more of him. I often close funeral services with that passage and I point out that uh, you can't have one without the, without the other. If if I say, for me to live is money, then to die is to lose it all. If for me to live is power, then to die is to be left impotent. If me to live is my 
possessions, to die is to leave empty palaces and to leave them to, to someone else. If me to live, if for me to live is my family, and to die is to be separated from them. If, but if for me to live is Christ, then to die is gain. If you don't know that Lord, you can know him this morning. He died for your sins. He does not hold them against you. He rose for your justification. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval in what Jesus did. That He was satisfied with that wonderful, loving sacrifice that he made for us. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, will live again. Here's a chance to live forever. It's all the result of believing in what our Lord Jesus did. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, for the great word in this psalm, the promise that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David knew that, though so much of the future was shrouded in mystery. He could not understand all that would take place, but he trusted your heart. Now, as we look back and read the Gospels and we see what you did for us, we too see your heart fully exposed on the cross, paying for our sins, the sins for which we should have died. And then the power of God expressed in that, and his love expressed in that immeasurable way in which he raised your body from the dead, never to see corruption, raised it to immortality, to glory. And then that wonderful promise that we also shall be raised. We thank you in Jesus' name.